The Legacy of John Williams. Celebrating the music and the art of Maestro John Williams. Hello and welcome, I am Maurizio Caschetto of The Legacy of John Williams and this is part 2 of the podcast special for the world premiere of Superman in Concert which is going to be performed on April 29 at the KKL in Lucerne, Switzerland with the City Light Symphony Orchestra conducted by Anthony Gabriele. The project is produced by City Light Concerts in association with Film Concerts Live and Warner Brothers. Here with me, my friend and collaborator, Tim Burden. Hello, Tim. How are you doing? Hey, Mauricio. You right? All good. All good, as always. Thank you for being here with me. In part one, we had conductor Anthony Gabriele as guest, who talked about the score, its musical characteristics, and how it's placed within John Williams' filmography. Today, in part two, we'll go behind the scenes, discovering how the project was put together and talking about its technical challenges with soundtrack producer Mike Medicino. Hello, Mike. Welcome back to the Legacy of John Williams podcast. Hi, Maurizio, and hi, Tim. Always great to be on with you. So happy to have you back. Yeah, welcome back. Before starting the recording, I was thinking about how the Legacy of John Williams podcast was launched more or less exactly three years ago uh, with a two-part podcast special with Mike Matasino dedicated to the 40th anniversary release by Lowland Records of Superman the Movie. And... Here we are again, three years later, uh, still here, <laughs> back to Superman on this occasion for the world premiere of the live in concert presentation of the movie. I am very happy to have you, Mike, today because I think it's very interesting and also important to look at this side of things. People know very well your work as a soundtrack producer the incredible restoration work that you do for classic film soundtracks, including many by John Williams. But not many probably know about your involvement in this film with orchestra format on which you were already collaborating uh, since a few years with the Film Concerts Live Association. And I think it's very important because this format is becoming very quickly a new paradigm for presenting film music live in concert. And also it's probably the the way in which many people in the audience are experiencing for the first time a symphony orchestra in a concert hall. So uh, how your involvement with Film Concerts Live started and specifically how you were involved in Superman? Well, my connection with Film Concerts Live in general is because the two producers of it are Jamie Richardson at the Gorfin Schwartz Agency, who is the assistant to John Williams and kind of my 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 liaison with all the soundtrack products we do, and his partner, Steve Linder, who I have known for many, many years because he used to be one of the managers of the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra. Way back when we did the first 
live-to-picture presentations. Um, I worked with him quite extensively, going all the way back to 1997 when we did the first 20th Century Fox film night there. And at that time, we actually transferred video masters to film and then projected film, which had to then be synchronized to a video playback that the conductor would see on a monitor. But we were actually running film at the Hollywood Bowl, and I think we continue to do that for a few years. Um, the other big event that I worked on was in 2001, just 10 days after 9-11, which is a sci-fi night, where we repeated a few things from the Fox night, like the ending of Star Wars and the hunt from Planet of the Apes. But that night, we also did 20 minutes of Star Trek The Motion Picture, and the series of boxes that I was in was with Mr. and Mrs. Robert Wise, Mr. and Mrs. Jerry Goldsmith. There was a magical evening, but also surreal, because just because of when it... Um, took place, but Steve was still at the bowl at that time, and then he joined IMG Artists, and then he and Jamie basically spearheaded this whole Film Concerts Live program. And through a lot of it, the concerts that they were doing intersected with soundtrack projects that I had going on, such as Back to the Future in 2015. And then, for obvious reasons, they launched into doing many of the most popular John Williams scores uh, live to picture, because the movies were very famous and popular. The scores were very famous and popular, and a lot of them were at a very manageable length of around the two-hour mark, like Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. and so forth. So Superman, I think, took a little bit of a while because of um, the, the necessity, the administrative side of dealing with Warner Brothers to make the whole thing work, and it just took uh, some time. But, uh, of course, my own history with Superman working on it as a soundtrack seems to keep coming up. I've done it three times now. I think we finally got it right, um, only to then find myself um, working on it uh, yet again for a concert, which was great because I just over the years, I just sort of ingested all this firsthand tribal knowledge, as you say, so I could answer anybody's questions that have come up about the score and could help the people who put these things together to sort of guide them. You know, and so I was able to give them like bar by bar descriptions of things and things to watch out for when piecing the music together and so forth, where edits were, what needed to be done, so on and so forth. So um, I've been able to bring that aspect to the, uh, to the proceedings and uh, ended up working peripherally and in small ways on Jurassic Park. Then we started entertaining this idea of adding music back into the concerts that had been originally scored and intended, but then not used in the films, but in a concert setting it became um, something that was worth pursuing because you're there to hear an orchestra playing. This was especially needed when you have scores that are a little bit light on music. They first did this with Back to the Future, where Alan Silvestri arranged some extra cues to put into early parts of the film just uh, because while the score is well known, there isn't really that much of it in the film. And this also was essential with Jaws where it's only about 40 minutes of music in the film. And particularly in the first half, it was very music light. So I pointed out that there were opportunities there to sneak back in some of the cues that were composed and recorded, but not used.
And it went from there. It came up again on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where uh, we did put in a lot of music that John had intended, but then wasn't used in the film. So that was obviously something that we would talk about for Superman, because we had the precedent of the extended TV cut running over three hours, which goes back to the 80s, but just a few years ago had finally a Blu-ray release from the Warner Archives. And that cut of the film included a lot of music put back in, even though the theatrical 1978 version left it out. So we had sort of a starting point for those discussions. And there was a... So in people's memories, there are... There is this television version where some people remember music actually being in some of these sequences. So it was an opportunity to just kind of look at all that, use the documentation that had emerged over the years, and uh, see where we could kind of expand the concert experience to include some extra music. This is very interesting. And actually, this is one of the topics that I wanted to discuss and go a little bit analytical with you, and specifically about the reasoning behind uh, the reinstatement or the reintroduction of certain pieces of music or certain cues that were uh, cut from the original theatrical release and now are being put back into the movie. So, uh, because also the score had to be fully reconstructed from the original manuscripts and also reconformed to the final version as heard in the movie. And this is a very specific topic because we know that Movies, in many cases, like in, in the case of Superman, are furtherly trimmed down or recut or restructured even after the music has been recorded. I'd love to go a little bit into detail about this aspect of the film with orchestra presentation. So, is the score of Superman pretty much the, the version that we hear in the final theatrical release of the movie? It's a big, big topic, and all of the detail would probably really bore people. But as you, can, as you can imagine, when they record a score, it's on the page, and then those cues get filed away in libraries. And, and if they make any changes during recording, the conductor will say, okay, let's, we're going to skip over bars 17 through 20, so just make a note of that. Or bar 25 gets repeated. They make some decisions from the podium. So a lot of what gets recorded doesn't necessarily go along with what's on the page. And then, as you said, when the movie's finished, Editing happens both to the picture and also, as I said, some music will get dialed out. So what's on paper in the libraries differs from what you actually hear. So what they've now taken to doing is a complete re-engraving process where, first of all, you have to find what exists. And if you're dealing just with sketches and that's all that exists, you have to then part it all out again. Fortunately, with most of these John Williams scores, the conductor's score exists. And in some cases, the parts already exist. So you have a starting point. IMG engages, usually, Joanne K Music Service to actually re-engrave the entire score so that you end up with a beautifully printed version that matches what is actually going to be played. So it will already have, as part of it, all of the cuts. It will account for the actual conformed version of the film. And in some cases where you have clumsy music edits in a film that might be disguised by sound effects or something, sometimes not, um, there's an opportunity there to figure out a way to more musically get past those little bumps. Mm -hmm. We had one in particular in Superman where I just did an edit of the music saying, hey, this is a smoother way of doing it. 
then uh, Mark Graham and the guys at Joanne Kane will listen, look at the sheet music, and then figure out how to actually translate that into a printed score. So it's a very, very big process, but that's really only the way that you could do it under this model where you want to engage several orchestras and the music and all the components to actually produce and present the show kind of go from orchestra to orchestra. The music's always there. And then um, John's music editor, Ramiro, will go in and streamer and punch it just as he would a new movie. Mm -hmm. um, he'll actually go and make all those marks on the, the video. Nowadays what we do is it's the same video goes to the conductor's monitor, but the streamers and punches are actually overlaid only on that monitor. So the conductor sees those timing cues, but the audience doesn't. So Ramiro will do that just as if it's a new movie. And we end up with a fait accompli where it's just an existing thing with um, component parts that you just send to the orchestra and say, here you go, here's your picture, here's your music, here's your uh, conductor's video. It's all just in a package. The other component that I've also gotten involved in is the creation of the, the bed tracks because in order to make this really work you have to have clean dialogue and sound effects to obviously play in the venue so the orchestra can accompany it. On older films that doesn't exist but they've done things like Casablanca and older films where you have to use electronic means to try to minimize the music and then you quite often will have the orchestra playing and people with sharp ears might hear the actual movie track also playing, and it becomes a difficult thing to kind of navigate and get through, and maybe sometimes the dialogue is a little bit buried, but ideally you want to have something without the music in it, and even more preferably, you'd want to have something where those two elements are separated so that you can actually maybe favor the dialogue or EQ the dialogue relative to the sound effects, and every single venue is completely different. So you have to tech it and see how it's going to work in that particular space and what's going to happen when you, you know, fill it with, you know, 6,000 people and what does that do to the sound factor in that they are really there to hear an orchestra, but most people going to see Jaws, for example, they already know what the movie's about. So you kind of have to factor in all of these things and uh, make for an enjoyable evening, but one where you do feel like you've had the experience of going to a symphony concert. So, uh, and then there's the other component that I've also been involved in, um, although this is more Jamie's wheelhouse, but some of my suggestions have been taken over time, which is um, the music that leads into the act break, which uh, has been dubbed the outro, and then the entr'act, which is bits of music to get you back into the uh, second act. And uh, the ones for Jaws uh, were mine, and uh, both mine and Jamie's were presented to John, and John liked mine. And uh, <laughs> so, so little things like that where I've just uh, had some involvement. And I've also done um, some work where we have to tweak sound effects or where we've got something where the music's just there and we want to get rid of it. And I'll create new sound effects um, or cleaned up dialogue or something or other to, uh, you know. So it's, a, it's, a, it's peripheral work. I haven't actually really joined the team, but I'm happy that they've consulted with me and engaged me formally on Jaws and Close Encounters and Superman now to uh, participate in creating these programs for the concert.
one of the things I'm sure the three of us will remember, um, the the first release of Superman on DVD and the isolated score track and uh, the kind of um, mess of editing the destruction of Krypton scenes were, you know, the, the music kept being dialed out and it keeps coming in. So, I mean, there's there's something which, you know, is kind of relates to what you were talking about, having music, um, you know, maybe reinstated. So the, the destruction of Krypton, I, I guess, was a, a great opportunity for you to, uh, you know, right that wrong of how, how messy those kind of music edits were. Am I right? Um, yes, and again, we had that extended TV version to go with as a starting point, and sometime in the, I guess in the mid-2010s, before we got to the 40th anniversary edition, Warner Brothers Music Library, um, when we went back over there to start going through paperwork again, had music editor Bob Hathaway's bound you know, binder, his binder with all the music spotting notes and all the recording logs. And the reason why that happened is that when he passed, his widow found it in the attic and had the insight to call Warners and ask, I found this, would you like it? And they said yes, because otherwise it might have been tossed. But that told us everything. That told us to the tenths of a second what was happening in the film at the time that the score was composed. And it did reveal certain other things that didn't make it into the final cut. But we had all that to go on. So the documentation was great. The um, spotting notes actually told us, you know, where all the music was supposed to go and, and exactly, you know, what beats John had to match in composing it. And for the most part, the television edit put things in the right place. The thing about that first DVD, of course, and this is potentially hypocritical coming from me, um, is that it also had a brand new mix to the movie itself, which, yes. I, which I just disliked intently. Oh yes, yes, that was the one with the riddle. The the never the Superman shield comes on. It wasn't as as punchy as it used to be, uh, or maybe too punchy. Softened. I'm not sure. Um, the, the the sound effects mm. on the main title was so loud. I mean, I do remember very loud. And others and and all the sound effects were really changed. Um, yeah. And they went with basically with a mono dialogue stem, and then redid all the sound effects and used six track music. Uh, to remix the film because the people involved just decided that the original stereo sound mix was not good for some reason. Even though I knew that there was a six track done by Gordon McCallum and the Pinewood Studios team in the UK. It sounded stunning. Very few people got to hear that track, but we know from history what the quality of those mixes were like. Finally, when the 4K disc came out, that track was finally not only included, at my suggestion, but it also ended up being the default track. So we finally get the original audio, and when you listen to it, you know that it's fine. So that was a big concern of mine when we started the concert, is because those separate dialogue and sound effects from the 2000 mix would have been readily available, and someone at the studio might have just handily pulled that and handed it over, and the people doing the concerts might not have had any awareness of this. But I said, no, I really think we should use the original audio. This came up on Jaws as well, and I only sort of half lost that battle because they used parts of both. But that remix also bothers me, even though I understand the need to do it because the film was mono. Um, I just don't feel that it has the same impact and quality of the Academy Award-winning sound mix from 1975. But on Superman, all they really had of the original mix to go with was the monoseps, 
So um, dialogue and sound effects. And of course, when you've got sequences of, of the film where there is no music, you don't have a problem. The only problem you really have is what I said before about it is helpful to be able to lower the sound effects relative to the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, recently, they've also been starting to subtitle the whole film, and that also kind of makes me uncomfortable. I don't like it because, again, I don't think people coming to see these popular films have any lack of awareness of what the stories are about. But, uh, you know, if that decision is made, then that's fine. You know, I support it. So we, so we definitely use the TV version of Superman as the starting point for me to look at placing music back in the film, along with all of the documentation and experience that I'd accumulated from doing the soundtrack three times. And it took the form of basically me making quick time videos where I would actually put the music back in for the team to listen and evaluate. And I just gave them everything that I could think of. Um, And then decisions were made about what they were going to go with or not go with. So we ended up, I think, expanding the score as presented in the film by about six minutes. And I think it's mostly stuff that it's in the first half, I guess. Well, uh, for starters, we, I made the suggestion of actually using John Williams's intended main title music rather than what the film gives you, which is an edited, pitch-adjusted end title. But John's original main title actually was done to synchronize perfectly with the animated credits, which we famously remember being so spectacular. So I said, why don't we try this? And I made the video of it because we had the mono sound effects bed of the whooshes. We were able to do it. And so they thought that was a great idea. as I know, there's also a little pause built into the film at the conclusion of the main title, because it ends with the big crash, which is they wanted, and the original film didn't. If you end with that big crash, the audience is going to need, they're going to applaud. They just are. And it gives the orchestra a chance to catch a breath after this big march, turn their pages, take a beat, and then the audience will settle down and then we can start the introduction of the planet Krypton and go all the way through. Music basically was originally intended to cover just about the whole entire Krypton sequence, with the exception of the first part of the council discussion. So not all of it went back in, but but some of it did, particularly when the spaceship uh, launches and then the whole actual destruction sequence. But there was music all for the conversation in Jarrell's laboratory that's not included. So it uh, was maybe half of what I presented, 
as potential ads. But it's nice that we start to uh, start with the main tile because it really makes this experience unique to the concert environment. And it's, it was mm -hmm. the right thing to do. And also, I think that, uh, as we said before, some of that sequence, you know, if you listen to the Planet Krypton queue and the whole, you know, trial sequence with the Zod, Earth and Non receiving their sentence and then being launched in the Phantom Zone, the piece is much longer than what we hear in the movie. So I guess there, again, some cuts had to be made in the score to conform exactly, you know, especially the sync points where they say guilty, boom, guilty, boom. original piece as recorded by John, it's much longer. You had various call and response percussion. Here's the thing that um, I don't, that hasn't come out really um, for all the discussion that's gone on about the Superman movies over the years. The opening of Superman 2 actually shows a shot from Superman the movie that was cut, which goes with that music that you mentioned. Oh, and it okay. goes across the disappearing faces on the wall, and then we pan to one side to reveal Terrence Stamp's face. That's actually a Superman the movie shot that was cut that goes with that music. And then there was also another little insert um, during the sort of the last round of Guilties that was a little pickup done later. So, yes, yeah, so all of that had to be conformed to match the actual 78 version of the film. But it, it was longer originally. Again, and also, I think the I think the, we discussed a little bit this uh, three years ago when we when we talked about the 40th anniversary release, uh, the big helicopter rescue queue is kind of one minute longer on the soundtrack recording than what we hear in the movie. Yeah, that was a tough one because, again, I mentioned the Bob Hathaway binder and the spotting notes. When you read the spotting notes, it doesn't seem like, it doesn't tell you really what might have been cut. The shot descriptions all seem to be the same. So these were obviously all little cuts for the most part. There's definitely one sequence just as he's about to run across the street and turn into Superman. Whereas I, I can't recall the specifics, but I know there was a description there of some extra things going on. And that accounts for a lot of that extra music that you hear. That was a tough one because they, again, pitch-adjusted the score 
for the film and cut it by about a minute. So, and it's amazing to me that we've never seen what the edit was at the time it was scored. Yet we have all these, you know, this extra footage on the TV version of, you know, driving around Smallville for 20 minutes. Um, and another 20 minutes to walk to the fortress and all that. So, but we haven't gotten, you'd think something done at the time of scoring would be handier, but uh, it probably was only in a work print form. So, but I remember the word, the word you used whenever we, we first had the chat about that was uh, interminable. I think it was. It was interminable. <laughs> <laughs> it did go on forever. Yeah, but the joke we always had about the Smallville scene is that um, we're looking at. Lana and the kids in the car for a long, long time, and they get to the Smallville farm, and Clark is there, and they say, "How'd you get here so fast?" And he says, "I ran." And you, in the TV version, you feel like, "Well, you could have walked, <laughs> or you could have ridden on the back of a snail and got here." So. <laughs> We had uh, a great chat in, in part one with An Anthony um, about the helicopter rescue queue, uh, you know, being, I think, all of our, one of our favorites, certainly a great highlight. And um, and I, I remember vividly being so excited to hear, you know, that on the, on the first edition you produced for Rhino, you know, with Nick Redman. I think we're all thrilled. But of course, in this concert setting, in a way, it's so perfectly structured to actually end the first half, isn't it? Because at, at the very end, and he's flying through the sky, um, you know, just before we get to, to super feats. So uh, uh, are we correct in assuming that that is the end of part one whenever the helicopter rescue takes place? You know, here's the thing we have to remember in the age of COVID is that uh, all this work was done two and a half years ago. And the concerts were postponed right, for this okay. a few times, right? So... I'm trying to remember, but as far as I can recall, the intermission is after the Air Force One scene. So is there any new music coders or intros that you mentioned a few moments ago you were involved in with previous ones? Uh, any kind of new tags or intros which we can look forward to for the, this new presentation? I'm, again, I, I'm, on this particular one, since it continued after I had done my bit, um, I'm not quite sure about how it was finally handled because at the time okay. we worked on this i was going over to suites and sitting there with the group and we were looking at stuff and then the virus hit and then you know it was done i was told what clips uh, were going to be put back into the movie and and i was mm -hmm. paid and that was the end of that and then it was just a matter of uh, you know i had plans to go to the london concert first and then that got canceled so yeah, I mean, I haven't really picked up on the on the details other than what I've told you already about the main title and some of the music. I know one helpful sequence that we did score all the way through, very helpful to the film, is everything where they're following Ned Beatty's character, Otis, and through, okay. through Grand Central Station and into the train, yeah. uh, which all was scored, but to, a, again, a longer, a, a cut that was longer than the theatrical, but shorter than the TV version.
to um, put music all the way through that. That really helped, I think, the first act, because you go for quite a while from the mugger scene, which we also run in full, we, rather than cut that off. We actually run all that in full, um, okay. right into the introducing Otis Q. Uh, and then from that point, it's a long, it's, it's a length of time before you get to the helicopter sequence after that. So, uh, it, you know, without that train station music, it would, it would be very sparse musically for quite a while. So that was helpful. But I think Anthony told us that it's one of the cases where there's more music in the first act rather than the second, which usually is the other way around with most of John's movies done live in concert, whereas there's less music in the first half and more music in the second one, especially in Jaws, like you mentioned before. But I think also Raiders, the second act is pretty much almost wall to wall. Why the first one is more sparsely spotted. Yeah, I hadn't timed it out, but I guess you're right. I mean, a lot of the music where I, that I proposed putting back into the second half of Superman is not in there. A lot of the action stuff, because what they ended up doing was um, dialing the music out during the thing, scenes of Jeopardy and bringing it back in when Superman appears. But all of it was scored. I remember um, suggesting a lot of it and making clips of a lot of it. But uh, with a, just a few cases of coming in slightly early, I don't think they went with a lot of it. regard how much John is hands-on in, 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 in this process I mean is he you know I know that he oversees you know the, the whole venture and he gives his own stamp of approval as as how the score has to be presented but how much there is back and forth between him and his music team and Joanne Kane in you know how to handle these kind of things um, he get does get involved he does revisit things and looks over the scores and sometimes will change a thing or two um, I know I think he did on Home Alone, maybe, or something. I know there was very subtle minor changes, but certainly if any music's being added, then... Merry Christmas. Um, well, that's just kind of an add-on thing, but I'm talking about actually making changes to orchestrations where he'll look at it and, and maybe fix something. I think that's okay. happened. Um, he did write the new intro for E.T. for concert. And then, um, it, and, and basically, the music for getting into the intermission and coming back from intermission... He listens, he wants to see clips of that and approve that. And anytime we add music, he needs to see the clips. For Jaws, um, uh, I sent, made a bunch of clips over and he and Steven Spielberg watched them together. Before it even got to that point, it had been decided to not even attempt to use the music for where the shark kills Quint at the end. Although it would have been nice to... I was going to ask that, yeah, actually. Yes, yeah, yeah, so that was off the table before it even got there. But they, but they looked at the rest of it, and including the scene following that, where the shark is, the music's cued to when a shark bursts through the glass, but none of that was used. I did put it into a clip for them to see, and uh, I had fun time thinking about how that went, because we heard that John told Stephen, you know, you were right to not use this. <laughs> really? And I'm thinking about, <laughs> and I think, what, what was Stephen thinking? Yeah, you don't know anything about spotting music. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
so but that that was the right call but uh and this i i would have liked if more were had been included of superman but it's already a very long score so i'm looking i see my notes here i originally presented 13 minutes of clips and they're going with about six minutes of, of added of added of, of added music hmm. so not a bad average yeah <laughs> no especially if we if you think about you know as you were saying a moment ago it's a long score it's i think close to 90 minutes in the end in the, uh, in the final movie i think it's more than the first star wars is definitely around the same average time of the empire strikes back i know maybe even more uh, maybe only a return of the jedi is longer than superman because it's pretty much wall to wall and you have to look at uh, just what the music mm-hmm. is and how much continuous music the orchestra has to play the climax of jurassic park is very difficult they go for quite a long time um, with some challenging bombastic music, so um, all the way through to the end credits, so it could be a little exhausting. And and was there ever a discussion about maybe reinstating some of your intended version of the cue? Like, for example, in Jurassic Park, we know the big, you know, T Rex reveal at the end when it comes to save the day. What we hear in the movie is a track version of the island fanfare, you know, the heroic theme. And that works perfectly in the movie. But was there ever a discussion to maybe reinstate the much, you know, more aggressive piece that John originally wrote for for that bit? I don't think so. I don't think they were thinking along those lines um, at that point because my only involvement in Jurassic Park was going to the multi-track recordings, mm-hmm. um, at which time I was disco- I discovered they were shedding, so I had Universal transfer them all. But in order to get the discrete shakuhachi flute for two cues, so that rather than an orchestra having to hire a player or bring in the instrument, a keyboardist could just press a button when the conductor asked for that instrument, and you'd hear the real one. And to also check um, if the chorus was discrete, which it was not. So they ended up on that, I think, using a synthesized chorus and revoicing all the synthesizer parts. But on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the synthesizer and the chorus was discrete. So that's the other thing that I was able to do on that project. And on Superman, the choir was discreet too. So what you actually are hearing is the real one, but it's not coming from the movie. It's actually coming from the orchestra by a keyboardist who actually punched that on cue. Um, It can't be embedded because the music needs to keep pace with wherever the orchestra is at that moment. And if they're off, you want the choir and the synths off too. So... Uh, but you're actually hearing the act, the synthesizers for Superman and Close Encounters and the choir from the original recordings, but coming from the musicians rather than the movie.
I do feel Jurassic Park could have used um, the goat bait cue for concert. But again, mm. the, that was mm. put together before I was coming along and suggesting this. And I believe the first one was Close Encounters. And on that one, we know from the very oft-played concert suite that John does of that, that a lot of that suite is for the music for the arrival of the mothership that was not used. So this was a chance to, for concert, put that uh, back in. And when the um, clip was presented to him, he, you know, he said, um, well, yeah, the orchestra's just sitting there. They may as well play. So, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, and that ended up, again, making it more of a, the concert experience a unique one rather than just here's the movie and here's the music just played live and that's the only difference. To act, when you can make these little changes, um, it just I like the idea of making it a, a almost a separate but related experience. Yeah, yeah. Well, my question was probably made f more from the perspective of, a, of this soundtrack fan, <laughs> uh, so to speak, because, uh, you know, we soundtrack fans often obsess over these kind of details, you know, having the music as originally intended being put back in the movie because we really want, especially when we see this movies live, we want to see the composer's vision fully reestablished, you know, as pristine and as clean as possible. So often this becomes a very huge topic among fans, but also is a way to show a respect over the work of the composer and maybe to right some wrongs in, in some way because, you know, John Williams himself sometimes jokes about, you know, the composer's bruised vanity <laughs> when, when he introduces some of his pieces in concerts, especially action cues that are, you know, buried under sound effects and so on. So I wonder if... There is some kind of reasoning when the opportunity presents itself to reinstate some of the original intended music uh, as part of the of, of, of the picture of the movie. So uh, that, that's why I wonder specifically about that Jurassic Park moment, uh, because in my opinion, it stands out very, very much. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would, of course, love to see it. I mean, in the case of Jurassic Park, I kind of personally sort of groan when we get to that ending because, you know, that's just personal thing. I just, you know, turning the T-Rex into a, uh, a hero and, you know, we've established that uh, there's kind of um, seismic vibrations when he walks around, but suddenly he's twinkle-toes at the end, tippy-toeing into a building, nobody, nobody aware of it. Um, the audience cheered in 1993, and part of it was because that island fanfare comes on. And personally, it didn't work for me, but I can kind of see the point. It's similar to... Jerry Goldsmith and Alien and the climax of that where um, they tracked it with Howard Hansen because he never brought it to sort of this elation he was never asked to. They never realized while he was still um, on the clock that that's what they really needed there. So they ended up using Howard Hansen. So um, we've done that ending in concert and figured out a way mm -hmm. to do it to serve, serve the same purpose um, and show that with a little creative editing you could have done it. You know, it, it, the, when you have a popular movie like that, you, you know, people expect it to be um, a certain way. I mean, uh, but you have certain opportunities like the main title of Superman, where it clearly just makes it better and more rousing and, more, and just more, more musical. It sets a, a better tempo for the whole evening, I think. I think uh, some opportunity was lost on the Star Wars films when they did The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi to do what you're saying to make it more like the John Williams score accompanied by film rather than the film accompanied by orchestra. So um, 
but again, I don't think they were really thinking along those lines until Close Encounters, um, where not only did I say, hey, there's this music we can add, but they felt like there was they needed some more to track early on in the film. So um, I created that. And then Jaws, where the need was actually genuine, because it's such a short score. And then Superman, because it was obvious, since uh, all of that music we knew about and had already been seen by many, many people in the extended television cut. Regarding the famous Can You Read My Mind line sequence, now it'll be very interesting to see this because, uh, I mean, uh, is it from the film or is the orchestra going to be playing the actual pop accompaniment with Margot Kidder's vocal isolated? How's, how's that going to work? You'll hear it exactly as the film has always presented it. It did, as that sequence always does, spark a lot of conversations. They they talked about cutting it. They talked about changing it. They and I said, look, maybe it was supposed to be a song. Maybe you can have it sung. You know, it ultimately would have rested with Richard Donner. And the sad thing about this project is that when it first started, Miss Donner was with us, as was Leslie Brickus, the lyricist of whom we spoke a lot about. And I told the concert people that you you would get no criticism from Leslie of wanting to change it to a song. Because uh, and and Margot Kidder didn't like it, and she's gone, but uh, she would not object either. It all ultimately rested with Donner. The decision was finally made. No, that's what people are used to. That's what's in the film. I had the clean audio recording of her speaking it, cleaned it up, presented that. The orchestra will play what you hear in the movie. It ultimately would have rested with uh, Donner anyway, and that's what he wanted of all the options available. But then we sadly lost him too. So so there was conversation about it, but. At the end of the day, you you know, it will be what it always was.
were talking with, with Anthony in part one, we we mentioned about the, the timeless quality of this movie. Of course, we, we spoke a lot about Superman three years ago from, for the podcast, and I suggest to all of our listeners to go back and revisit those very long two parts conversation that we had with Mike uh, because mm. we really went into detail about Superman. But uh, I'd love to, to, to round off the conversation going back to the movie because I think that this is actually a movie that is still very much fond in the memory of all people, not just for the people of our generation, you know, the people who grew up in the 70s and 80s, but also to a later generation. Of course, we saw further incarnation of the same character and, you know, we saw a new version of the story being told. But this movie seems to have still today a, a, a magical spark or something that still feels like it's part of our world, uh, despite being maybe very naive as seen from the eyes of a modern <laughs> audiences. Uh, but, uh, but it has a sincerity and a, and a true spirit that is still very strong. And I think the music helps a lot to give this movie this timeless quality. I don't know what, what you think, guys. Well, I would probably just repeating things that I likely said on those podcasts of uh, a couple of years ago. But uh, the main things at work are, first of all, the music, because what I feel about the music is that it not only scored this movie, but it scored the whole myth of Superman. So no matter what piece of Superman footage you take, whether it's a cartoon from the 30s or a TV show from the 50s or the movies that they're making now, and you put this music over it, it works and applies. So he scored the myth itself, and he did the exact same thing with Dracula, I feel. So there's that. But the, the two things that hit me about Superman and why it resonates and is timeless is because it's the American immigrant story. If you take the alien and fantasy elements out of it, you have a lot of touchstones of um, just everyday life. And the Smallville sequence where you have this you know, boy growing up on a farm and the day comes when he has to tell his mother he's leaving and he ends up in the big city... This is just the American immigrant story, and it really anybody around the world can relate to it because we all there's always that moment where you're going to grow up and be your own person, and then he's kind of like the fish out of water, struggles with two parts of himself, and ultimately has to feel sort of comfortable in his own skin, and that's just something that's just relatable. So when we see you know Superman struggling with the Clark Kent side of him, and he really wants Lois Lane to like him as Clark, um, that kind of thing. These are, these are the things that make the story work. It's not, as much as you need the flying and you need Krypton and you need the action and the spectacle and all that, and you need a villain, it's those qualities that make this thing work. Uh, the fact that this movie focused so much on that, which is the influence of Richard Donner and Tom Mankiewicz, that's what I think makes it timeless, is those things. And so when you get that back with an audience actually experiencing it, that vibe just makes its way through the as part of the communal experience everybody can relate to it with anthony we talked a lot about christopher reeve's performance the way he em really embodies the whole gamut of, of the character the two sides of the character with a pitch perfect performance i mean it, i think back in the day it was dismissed like a you know not as a quality actor performance but i think you can see you know, he was a Juilliard guy. I mean, he, he knows his chops <laughs> and he shows very well in various parts of the movie. 
Well, if you can pull off wearing that costume, for heaven's sake, you know, you have to have some acting ability. Because he just, you know, look, he, he makes, he, he pulls it off as he's totally cool with it and comfortable with it. And that's the thing I think about this movie, you know, when the whole essential conflict where he kind of disobeys his father at the end, again, to come back to sort of the immigrant component of this, or this generational component of this, where the older generation says, this is how we do things, this is our culture, and you can't break that. He's basically telling his son, you're not human, so uh, you can't interfere. Superman realizes, well, no, you've sent me here. I am human. This is my home. You know, now I can make my own decisions about my own culture and my own generation and my own life. These are just very powerful, resonant things that make it identifiable as at, the, at a human level. And so consequently, all of the fantasy and the, and the fluttering cape and the, and, you know, and, and the red BBDs and all that suddenly works. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. You're right. And I, and I think the only thing I could add really is just the, you know, to echo certainly what you both have said, but also just the, you know, the structure of the film, the overall structure, the, there's so many high points, you know, and, and so many moments. And I know we've talked about this before, but, you know, the use of the, you know, the big Luma crane, which was new at the time, but, and it's aged well, it's still, it's just so wonderfully dramatic at those, you know, the funeral scenes, uh, obviously leaving home, gliding through the crop fields is just still one of my favorite moments of cinema, just full stop. Well, I think um, the theatricality of all of it, right? And I mean... Um, yeah, it is, yeah. It, that lends itself to the communal experience, and that's why it's perfect for the concert hall. this is getting a bit technical and you may not remember but at the end of leaving home that cue when it goes into fortress of solitude there's quite a kind of overlay isn't mm. there so that that's going to be interesting to hear live in concert how they deal with that I don't know if you remember. yeah of course I'm yeah sure but I, I don't think i don't think it's um overlaid in any way that's going to be challenging because you have uh basically the strings ringing out over the celesta and the flutes, and, um, yeah. flutes and the uh, and the, then the choir comes in. So I mean, I think they can finesse that. And of course, it's all going to be disguised by the transition mm -hmm. to the Arctic wind and all that anyway. So I, I don't. Yeah. I think. I yeah. mean, you know, with a little bit finessing and rehearsal, they could nail that.
Mm, brilliant. No. I will be sure to report clearly. Uh, yes, after I return please from, do. <laughs> from You'll be seeing it before. Anyway, yeah, so. I, I'm very thrilled to, to attend <laughs> the performance lucky. because I've been already there once in 2015 to see Raiders of the Lost Ark, actually. And it's a, such an amazing concert hall. It's huge. And it has this beautiful resonance. I mean, it's it's really beautiful a spectacular sound, place. Yeah. And I think it, John's music in that venue, it, it really shines through. I mean, it, I, I cannot wait to, to hear the full score of Superman being performed live in that place. That's great. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like the stars are aligning for me to get to Royal Albert, which is now end of June, I think, right? I think so, yes. It is. But for me, it, I'm a little bit biased, but I mean, I just feel that uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the American dates launching. And to me, the place to see this will be with the New York Philharmonic. I, I remember actually well, that, witnessing yeah. part of um, the movie being shot in, on the streets of New York City, in the distance, a few blocks away. But I did have a moment where I saw that on our way to Grand Central Station to get the train home, as it were. But uh, <laughs> Very cool. um, And I think it was the reshoots that they were taking because the first time they tried to shoot this outside the Daily News building was the night of the big, huge blackout where we had lightning strikes and uh, half the eastern seaboard went dark for two and a half days. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so, I mean, that's what I'm looking forward to is... Uh, I'm looking to me New York's the place to see it I'm looking forward to seeing it with the hometown orchestra and as a final question for you Mike what do you think could be or should be the next John Williams film presented live in concert because I I was looking at the list of movies that are now available in this format from John's filmography and I see that virtually all the greatest hits are now in the can so I was wondering if what could be the, the, the most ideal title to present in this format for, for the future? Well, if I were to speculate, I would probably be saying too much um, because <laughs> okay. it's, not my, it's not my place as these very complicated deals have to sort of move through their own pace. And it all comes down to the cost of creating the music and having enough orchestras interested. So I am consulting on a few things, a couple that are not John Williams, um, but one that is, I'm not quite sure at this juncture if it will uh, see the light of day. It has some challenges, but uh, but I but I think it might. Um, but as you pointed out, certainly I think um, had Lucasfilm not been bought by Disney, they would have looked at doing maybe the third Indiana Jones. But now that would be up to Disney concerts to do themselves, mm-hmm. even though they would probably hire some of the same people, Joanne Kane and Ramiro and so forth. But, uh, but yeah, they've done sort of like the greatest hits. And then you, uh, you, you know, you, you could just look at all the different titles that have been done and see just how much longevity they have. And sometimes you have things that are so specific to a time of year, like Home Alone. It's like you can only really market that at the holidays. And it's done very well. But yeah, I think, I think for now, the, the obvious ones have, are already in the catalog. And uh, Superman was kind of like the one obvious holdout. But, uh, but we'll see. Maybe there'll be some interest because, I mean, all of Star Wars has been done. All of Harry Potter has been done by Cineconcerts. And uh, all the big Spielberg hits have been done. I mean, I don't know, like, for example, how much of an audience you get for, you know, doing Catch Me If You Can, say. As nice as it would be to hear all that music done live, there is a reality here of orchestras interested and feeling that they could fill the house with these things. Of course, yes, makes a lot of sense. 
And uh, I think that yeah. it's bound to, you know, to, you know, we, we have already a rich catalog. And so we can, I mean, I personally, I cannot wait to, to experience Superman in this format. Well, it has um, been part of this amazing trend we have now that more film music is being performed by symphony orchestras and people are more exposed to it than ever before. And, and that's a big deal. So, um, because there was a time where it was really just, you know, treated sort of like the, um, the, the stepchild we hope would just go away. It's not really symphonic music. It's, it's using a symphony orchestra, but that's not anything for a concert hall. You know? And gradually over time, it's gotten more respect. And I think John himself played a big part in that in his years at the Boston Pops and bringing more and more um, film music and showing just how much the audiences liked it and how much orchestras really do like playing it. So, um, so, so, so we've come a long way from um, 20 years ago when this crazy idea of doing all VT live at the Shrine here in L.A. with John conducting uh, <laughs> was pulled off. That was a tremendously technical uh, thing to pull off. But now like all the, it's been all debugged and uh, it's a well-oiled machine now. But these certain films, Jaws, Raiders, Home Alone, Close Encounters, Jurassic Park, Superman, those will just play forever. You know, they're just those kind of movies. And that little mini overture that John Williams wrote specifically for the 2002 ET anniversary at the Trine, was that, is that incorporated at all into this, the current FCL ET to picture? I don't think so, and I don't even remember what that was. Did he play he played an ET overture, or did he play the Special Olympics? Yeah, no, I, think I think that there was some animation no, that footage. was done with, with people in, the orchestra. of the orchestra, like in Fantasia, you mm. know. Uh, okay. Oh, that's right. Some, that's right. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So we had a little. We had a little clip of it on, on, you know, the bonus feature, and it was always something which I think we, we all wanted to hear. But I don't think. Yeah, I for, I've forgotten all about thing. that. But I think that that was. But, um, no, well, it's. Yeah, I think maybe just for that. Yeah, I think that was a specific just... for that event. I think also, I think at that event they didn't play the end credits. I think that they just, you know, the movie ended without random, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was like live end credits. Remember, he invited them all on stage. It was nice, nice touch. You must have been there, Mike. Yeah, I was. Yeah, you contractually have to run the credits. So, but there's not. You have limitations of how long the orchestra can sit on the stage and uh, at one time without a break, and then how long the whole evening can be before you go into overtime chunks. So, a lot of these movies that get to the length of Superman at two hours twenty three minutes are very tight. The break can be just so long, and you really have to sort of clock it out. And um, for that reason, the end credits won't be played. And those set a record for running time of end credits when that movie first appeared. You know, there was a initial conversation about not running the main title credits of just having the S and the word Superman. And, oh, no. uh, and thankfully that went away because as I pointed out, I says, look, that march gets you through the first hour until you actually see Superman. We can't not have it. So it's like the perfect concert opener. It wouldn't have make any yeah, sense. I mean, yeah, everybody totally agreed. I mean, yeah. yeah so I mean, Planet Gripton is a fantastic queue, and and I, I wouldn't be surprised if some audiences do clap at the end of that queue. But um, no, you can't definitely you can't uh, negate the march. No, that's very wise to keep it because you have a, you have a long way to go to you get to hear it again. So that helps you uh, get through the wait for to actually see Superman. But I wish I could. I wish I could be there, in the, or there, or London, um, because uh, you know, just to actually just be 
irrespective of the movie itself, just to actually have the orchestra playing all this. It's just going to be, it's a very exciting thing to know that it's all written down and ready to go. Mm, yeah, it's great. You're, you're a part of it as well. Well, let's hope that 2022 will bring us, maybe us three together in some venue, in some part of the world to enjoy something together and maybe do one of these talks in person. That would be, Wouldn't that be extremely fun, yeah. fun to do. Milan. Milan. Yes, there's a nice yes. chance to be in my hometown at the end of the 2022 because it's the official date for John's appearance with uh, Philharmonica della Scala Orchestra in uh, in the theater in Milan. We'll see. I have a lot of catch up to do from spending <laughs> eight months on Star Trek, and things are behind now, and so I'm trying to get caught up. So um, yes. I, I don't I don't want to have you know it'll just traveling will just uh, compound the problem. So <laughs> well, it, it's the big the big 90 year and um we, we we always like to kind of close our our chats with you with with little teases so mike over to you just to, to keep listeners happy we've got uh, i know you can't say but exactly what's coming but we have a lot to look forward to i guess yes there's reissues coming and at least if they all make it this year at least five john williams releases so um, nice fantastic. good stuff coming that, that's something to look forward to. And I was happy. It was nice to get back to working with his music again. That's mm. something very good to look forward to. And yes. once again, guys, thank you so much for this enjoyable talk together. Thank you. Uh, Superman in Concert is being premiered on April 29th at KKL in Luzern, Switzerland. It's going to be also performed this summer at the Royal Bird Hall in London. More details on thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com. Continue to follow us, and guys, thank you so much for staying with me. And always nice to see you and talk with you. And thank you, as always, for you guys going into the wee hours on my behalf. Thanks, Mike. All the best. Mm-hmm.